Well, take a Bible out. John chapter 20 is our passage. There's some notes in the bulletin. If you'd like to know the direction we're headed this morning. This will be week one in a long trek through the Gospel of John. After this week, we'll go chapter one and we'll just begin to work our way from beginning to end. This morning, we're going to start in chapter 20. And just in a moment, I'll explain to you why. I'd like to start with this idea since we're jumping in to John for the next really several years. The Gospel of John tells the story of Jesus differently than the quote-unquote synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I am not saying to you that John tells a different story. It is the same story, but John tells the story differently. He sees the story a little bit differently. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic Gospels. And that word synoptic comes from a couple of Greek roots. Syn, S-Y-N means together. Optic obviously makes you think of your eyes, something that you see. Synoptic means they see it together. They look at it together. They sort of stand from the same perspective and describe the same reality. And when you read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you can Google this. You can find little graphics, infographics that will help you make sense of it. But much of the material in those three Gospels is word for word exactly the same. They include basically the same structure in how they put the story of Jesus together. There's a few differences here and there. Matthew has a few things that only Matthew has. Mark has just a tiny bit. I think it's 3% of Mark is only found in Mark. Luke has a few things that only Luke has. But generally, those three Gospels see the story of Jesus together. They, They tell the story in the same way. John tells the same story differently. And I'll just give you a few examples I I ran through this week. John does not tell the Christmas story. John does not talk about Jesus' baptism. He does not mention Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. He does not include parables. He doesn't tell about Jesus calling 12 men to be apostles or disciples. He doesn't ever talk about demon exorcisms. He doesn't mention the transfiguration. He doesn't talk for all the focus he puts on Jesus' last night on earth with his his disciples. He doesn't talk about the, the Passover, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. He doesn't mention that. He rarely mentions the kingdom of God, or in Luke it's the kingdom of heaven. Right? You, you read through the synoptics and it's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, over and over and over again. John almost never talks about that at all. And then John throws in a lot of extended conversations that, I'm just going to warn you, they're hard to work through. I mean, you go to Matthew, Mark, and Luke and the conversations are sort of short and pithy and back and forth. But in the Gospel of John, there's some dialogue and some discussion that you really have to engage your mind on. Jesus preaches some sermons. Bible scholars call them in John discourses. And sometimes they're really long. We're going to have to spend weeks to tackle some of these discourses. He tells the same story, but he tells it differently. Long, long-standing tradition says that the Gospel of John was written by John the Apostle, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James. So if you take a different view, I would love to argue with you about it later. We can kick it around. But this is generally the consensus, that this is the John who wrote this Gospel. Tradition tells us that John the Apostle outlived all the other apostles. All the other guys of the twelve take out Judas... All the other guys who followed Jesus, tradition tells us they ended up dying for their faith. They ended up martyred. 
And sometimes we have very specific accounts from historians about how that happened. Sometimes it's just sort of vague rumors or legend has it or rumor has it that this is what happened. He went this way. He died. But tradition tells us that all of the other apostles were killed for their faith. John was different. He was persecuted. He was persecuted greatly. But he lived to be an old man. All the other guys died young. He lived to be a very, very old man. And tradition tells us that the Gospel of John was probably written around 90 A.D., just before he died. And you can sort of do the math on how old John would have been when he was following Jesus as a young man, living to the end of the first century and, and writing this book. But when you realize all these pieces sort of coming together, you realize John writes a gospel, and he writes it in a different way than Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote. He had a lot of time to read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He knew about them. He'd read them. He had decades to think about the story of Jesus and to think about what it was like to walk around with Jesus. And when he tells the story, he tells it just a little bit differently. Now, how many of you can remember being in high school or college and having to write like a research paper or a term paper, something like that? Yeah, some of you are grimacing just at the memory. It's a painful memory for you. You're going to have nightmares this week. I can think back to Emerald High. I had the same lady for English my junior year and senior year, Miss Deanie Davis, and she was a, I didn't like her at the time, but looking back on it, she was a really good English teacher. I can think about English classes I took at West Texas A&M. I can think about the sweet, sweet lady at Southern Seminary that had to proofread my dissertation, and she just bled all over it and gave me back these red pieces of paper and change it all, it's no good, fix it all. If you've ever written a paper and you've had to turn it into an English teacher, you know that one of the things you have to have in that paper, if you want a good grade and if you want to write clearly, is you have to have a thesis statement. You have to tell your reader, this is why I'm writing this paper. I'm trying to convince you of something. I'm trying to inform you of something. I'm trying to change your mind about something. I'm trying to entertain you or make you think about something differently. You've got to include some sort of thesis statement. What is your argument? What is your point? Why should I even keep reading what you've written? Now, I can't prove this, but I'm almost certain that the Apostle John had a really good English teacher somewhere along the way. Obviously, it wouldn't have been English. It would have been Greek or Hebrew or Latin or who knows. But he had a really good teacher who sat him down at some point and said, John, if you're going to write a book, you might as well do your reader the favor of telling them why they should read your book. Let me just give you a few examples of this from books that John wrote. Revelation 22 These words, this is at the very end. He's written this whole book of Revelation. He says, these words are trustworthy and they're true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. That's why I wrote this book for you. It's trustworthy and it is true. It is a rock underneath your feet regardless of what persecution you may face in life. And these are the things that are soon going to take place. That's why I've written it. Another example, 1 John 5.13. This is again at the end of 1 John. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's why he wrote the book of 1 John. And I don't know if you've ever read 1 John. It's an incredibly challenging, convicting book to read through. And John wrote it so that you could know and have assurance 
that you have life in Jesus Christ. He tells you right there at the end of the book. We see the same thing in John 20, 30 to 31, our passage this morning. He says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, your English teacher might get mad that John put his thesis statements at the end of his books, but he did put a thesis statement in each of these big books. This is the big idea of our passage this morning. Really, you could say this is the big idea of the whole gospel of John itself that we're going to study for the next multiple, multiple months. John wrote this gospel so that people would believe. He wrote these stories so that you would be a person of faith that you would believe. He knew, living as long as he lived... To the end of the first century, there's a whole lot of people that never got to see Jesus. They didn't get to walk with Jesus. They didn't get to listen to him preach. They didn't get to see the miracles. So I'm going to write these things down, the signs, the miracles, the teachings, all of it, so that you might believe. Now, next week we start trekking through. One passage at a time, one paragraph at a time. This morning we're just going to camp on these verses and ask ourselves a few questions and see if we can find answers to those questions. So the first question is this. What does John mean when he says believe? What does John mean when he says believe? This is tricky for us. We live thousands of years after John wrote. We speak a different language. We live in a different culture. We're on the complete other side of the world. And sometimes when we hear John say, I write these things so that you can believe, we have a little miscommunication on what does he mean when he says believe. We use this word in many, many different ways in everyday conversation, or we can use it in many different ways. So sometimes we might say, I believe you. You're telling me something, and I believe you. Or you might tell me something, and I might say, I don't believe it. And what I really might mean is, that's incredible, but I believe you. Or you might tell me something, and I might say, I don't believe it. And what I mean is, you're not telling me the truth, right? Same word used in a number of different situations. We can use the word believe, thinking about the past or the present or the future. And so I'll pick it a, an open wound here this morning, okay? It's mine too, so I'm not being mean to you. Past. I believed the Cowboys were going to beat the Rams. I mean, I really believe. Some of you are like, you're a fool, you're an idiot for believing that. But I, I believed it. Or I could say present tense. I believe there needs to be some coaching changes, And we need to shuffle something around. I believe that needs to happen. Or we could jump into the future and I could say, I believe we're going to win the Super Bowl next year. Next year's our year and we're going to do it, right? With thinking about the past, thinking about the present, thinking about the future. And to make it all just a little bit more murky, let's acknowledge this. We live in a time and a place where people celebrate belief for the sake of belief. Right? Well, you hear a lot about, oh, I'm a person of faith, or I'm a big believer in, and then you fill in the blank. And in our culture, it's not really kosher, acceptable, it's not really the good thing to say, well, why do you believe in that? Why would you put your faith or your trust in that? What matters is that you have belief, or that you have faith. The object is really irrelevant for most people as long as you have belief or faith in something or someone or some idea 
most people are just sort of cool with that. I believe. I have faith. And maybe that belief and that faith can just be boiled down to the simple idea, I believe it's going to be okay. I just believe it's going to work out. Well, why? On what basis? I don't know. I just believe. And we use this word and we get a little bit confused. And so I want to I want, to, I want you to understand this morning, what does John mean when he says believe? In the Gospel of John, faith is an active thing. It's an active thing. And I'm going to give you a little vocabulary lesson. I hope this is helpful. I hope you don't feel this is too academic because we're going to bring it back home and drive it home to our hearts in a minute. Faith is an active thing. I want to put a couple of words on the screen. Okay, Believe. It's a verb. In English, the word believe is a verb. It's something that you do. I believe. You're the subject. You believe. And the object could be the thing that you believe in. The word faith is a noun. It's a thing. It's something that you have or possess. It's sort of that, what is a noun? It's a person, place, thing, or idea, right? And faith is a a thing. It's an idea. Something that you can possess. Sometimes people get a little bit confused because of a sort of a fluke of history and how we've got these two words, believe and faith. And sometimes you'll hear people say, well, believing is one thing, but having faith is another. And I've heard people say, believing is the the real deal, having faith is just kind of eh. And I've heard people say, no, having faith is the real deal, and believing is just kind of eh. But when you dig down a little bit deeper into the original language of the New Testament, you realize you can't separate these two things. You can't divide these two things. They're, they're the same idea in the root, and I'll put the root words up. The Greek verb that we translate as believe is pistuo. Pistuo, it's a verb. It's something that you do. And the noun form of the same word is pistis. It's something you have. It's something that you possess. And you can see in the Greek, the root is exactly the same. And it's just a weird fluke of history. I can't tell you why I'm not a linguist, but as Greek words get translated to all sorts of different languages and they end up in English, we end up with an old English word, believe, and an old French word, faith. And we hear them and they sound like different things. Right? We say, well, maybe that's one and this is the other. Maybe there's a difference. Maybe the, the, the biblical authors are trying to tell us something. No, it's the same thing. It's the same idea in the root. Believing is what you do. Faith is what you have. But the root of those, those words are connected. Here's the interesting thing about the Gospel of John. For John, in this book, faith is always an active thing. Not a single time in the Gospel of John will you find the noun pistis, faith. None. It's not there. On the flip side, John uses the verb believe almost a hundred times. You can take all the other verb believes in the New Testament and add them up. John has more just in this book. He says it over and over and over and over again. Why do you think we titled the series Believe, right? We're going to talk about it every single week. What does it mean to believe? What is John calling us to when he says we ought to believe? And John is saying in his word selection, not that the bottom word, faith or pistis, is a bad word, but what he's saying to us is this is active. This is not just something that, that you get and you sort of hang on to. 
This is not something that can be reduced to a plaque or a, a poster that you put on the wall. This is not something that you can re- reduce to a Facebook status that you throw up on social media. This is an active thing in your life. This is something that you do. Faith is an active thing. 98 occurrences in the Gospel of John. Believe, 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 believe. Outside of the Gospel of John, I think a helpful way to think about this is by listening to the Protestant reformers. Just take a little detour here. Guys like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and the rest. These guys spoke up in an age when Christendom and the church was really confused about a lot of things. And one of the things that the reformers said is, sola fide, faith alone. We are saved by faith alone. And do you know what the Catholic Church said when the reformers started talking about faith, 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 faith? The Catholic Church said, we're all about faith. We we believe in faith. What do you mean? You you act like you just invented faith. We've been talking about faith for 1,500 years. Think you got this newfangled idea about faith. And the reformers had to step back and say, okay, we're using the same word, but we may not be talking about the same thing. And the reformers had to clarify, what do we mean by faith when we talk about salvation is sola fide? It's by faith alone and not by works. What does that mean? What does that look like? And here's how they ended up clarifying it as they thought about it and they wrote and they talked about it. They talked about the nature of saving faith by using three terms. Noticia, ascensus, and fiducia. Those are the Latin terms. What they mean is content, conviction, and trust. Content, conviction, and trust. And so just to think about the reformers, the content... At the time, the Roman Catholic Church, and even today, would talk about infants who were baptized, and they would say, we're sort of granting some faith to these infants. Right? It's, it's the faith of the church that is sort of their faith. And they knew you couldn't separate baptism and faith in the New Testament, and so they sort of said, well, we're going to give you this faith. They reduced it only to this noun. And the Reformers came along and said, wait a minute, there's a content to it. You have to understand it. You have to, to know What is the gospel message? That God is a holy God and you're a sinful person and Jesus is the answer to that problem and that you need to repent and believe. You have to know the content before you can ever trust in it. It's not just something that can be given to another person. So they talked about noticia, content. Then they talked about a census, right? Conviction. Conviction that it's true. It's one thing to know a bunch of facts. There were all sorts of corrupt priests and corrupt religious folks and corrupt uh, people involved with the church making a lot of money off the church and they could answer all the right questions and say all the right things, but it was just this big game to them, right? The faith was just a means to a greater end in their minds. And the reformers said, no, 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 no. It's not enough just to know some facts. There's got to be conviction that these things are real. These things are true. We're not just playing a spiritual game here. Right? This is not just, can you pass the theological test? Do you believe that these things are true? But then they said, even that's not enough. Because up to that point, the demons are in. Satan is in. He knows the facts better than you do. He knows they're true. He knows his doom is certain. There's no question about whether or not these things are true. What's missing with the demons is this element of personal trust. Personal trust. Do you know the content? Are you convicted and convinced that it's true? And are you personally trusting? That's the active part. Are you believing that these things are true for you in your life? 
I think it's worth just stopping right here at the beginning of the Gospel of John and wrestling with these things in our own lives. Some of you may be here because it's the beginning of a a new year and you've made some kind of resolution to be back in church and we're so glad that you're here. But you may be here and you may be familiar with churchy things and Jesus stuff and Christianity, but you may not really know the content. You might say, you know what, I, I don't know what the Bible's all about. I don't know what... I mean, I know we come and we sing and guy gets up and talks and there's an offering, but I, I, I don't really know what the message is, what the truth is, what we're gathering around. And maybe for you, you need to start this morning with this content, understanding that God is a holy God and you are a sinful person. Jesus came to make things right between you and God and his call on your life is repentance and faith. My guess is most of you here on a Sunday morning have the content part down. The question is, do you believe that it's true? I mean, I know you're at church and you're supposed to nod and say yes, but really, do you believe it's true? When we gather together, we sing these songs, we pray these prayers. Are you convinced that what we're doing is real? And most importantly, is this what you're trusting in? Is this what gives you hope and security and peace and joy? Is it the good news that though you were separated from a holy God by your sin, that Jesus came to bring you back into a relationship with him and that you receive it by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Is that what you're trusting in to make you feel safe and secure in life? Are you trusting in the latest posting of oil prices? Are you trusting in how things are going at your job or if there's a lot of fighting in your home or there's not a lot of fighting in your home? What is it that is your ground level security in life? What are you trusting in? What are you believing in? And John is saying to us, this book written thousands of years ago, I've written these things that you might believe. Right? I want you to know something. I want you to be convinced that it's true. And I want you to actually trust in it. I want you to rest in it. And I want you to rely on it. What does he want us to believe? That's the next question. What is the content of what he actually wants us to believe? Here's how he summarizes it in John 20. Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus is the Son of God. That's what he's calling us to believe. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. Look at it again in your Bible if you have it open. John 20. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. These are written so that you may believe. Believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's fascinating to read through the New Testament and to see how often Christ is coupled up with Son of God. Those two titles, you understand Christ is not Jesus' last name. If anybody was going to use a last name for Jesus, it would have been Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus, son of Joseph. And so these two titles, Christ and the Son of God, they show up together over and over and over again. It's like the writers in the New Testament want us to think in these two lines of thought regularly. Look at these examples, Matthew 16, 16. Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Christ and Son. Mark 1.1. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
the Son of God. John 11, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Two more examples. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. In Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's not all of them. I mean, we could keep going. Christ and Son, Christ and Son coupled together. And John says, boiling it down to a very simple thesis statement, I am writing these things that you would believe. I want you to know something. I want you to believe it's true. Have conviction of that. I want you to trust in it. And here's the content. Here's what I'm setting before you for belief. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. Most of us are familiar with those titles. But if I put you on the spot and I said, tell me why they matter and what they mean, we'd start him hawing around. Christ is a Greek word. In the Old Testament, the the Hebrew word is Messiah. Those two words mean the same thing. So there's a a worship song that came out a few years ago that talked about Jesus the Messiah. That's Jesus the Christ. Same idea, same word. Literally, it means anointed one, the one anointed by God. The idea is that God is going to send somebody. He's going to send this Messiah. He's going to send this Christ. He's going to send this anointed one. When you look all through the Old Testament, you come away saying, the Messiah, the Christ, is going to be the one who fixes what we messed up. Our sin separates us from God, makes us God's enemies, and the Messiah is going to come and he's going to fix that. And you can trace it all the way through the Old Testament. You can start in Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve sin and God says, I'm going to send the offspring of the woman to crush the serpent's head. You can keep reading to 2 Samuel 7 where God says to David, I'm going to send someone and he's going to sit on your throne and be a king. You can go to Psalm chapter 2. It says the Messiah, it uses the word, says the Messiah is going to rule all the peoples with a rod of iron. You can go forward and You can look in Isaiah 52 and 53, which we just looked at recently. You can say, the one that God is going to send is going to be the servant who suffers and dies for his people. He's coming to fix what we messed up. Our sin separates us from God, and the Messiah is coming to fix it. All of that stuff, all the Old Testament, hope and expectation is wrapped up when John says, I want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ. This is the one that God has been promising to send for millennia. All of those promises have been fulfilled. He sent him. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. We have a hard time hearing that and understanding that. As Americans, 2,000 years later, other side of the world, we hear Son of God, we get all sorts of wacky thoughts in our heads about what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God. Part of the problem for us as Americans is that we'd like to think we're all God's children. Right? We just, you're born, we welcome you into the nursery at the hospital, we throw you in the nursery down the hall, or we don't, and we just say, well, you know, we're all children of God. And you know, the Bible doesn't talk about you and me that way. The Bible says that when we're born, when we show up in this world, we don't like to hear it, but the Bible says that we're God's mortal enemies, alienated and estranged from Him, separated from Him by our sin, from birth. So I haven't even done anything yet. I know. That's how bad the situation is. You're separated from birth. You're his enemy. 
You're not on his team. You're not on his side just because you showed up on this planet. Look, when Jesus walked around and he said, I'm God's son and God is my father, the Jews listening to him knew exactly what he meant. They knew that Jesus was not just saying, well, we're all God's children and that includes me and you and let's have a big happy hug. They heard Jesus claim to be God's son and God to be his father and they picked up rocks and got ready to hurl them at his face. And they said, that's blasphemy. You're making yourself equal with God when you say that. And not one time did Jesus look back and say, oh no, I think you misunderstand me. I just mean we're all God's children. Not once did Jesus say, whoa, let me clear this up. Put the rocks down, fellas. Every time he doubled down, I'm the son of God. God is my father. They knew exactly what he meant. And when John says, I want you to believe that Jesus is the son of God, what he's saying is, I want you to believe that Jesus is God himself come to save you. He didn't just send a third party. He sent himself. He came. We're going to dig through John chapter 1 and we're going to see it. This is God, the creator God who has come to save us. He's the Christ. He's the son of God. And again, I just want to challenge you. Sort of laying groundwork for this whole series. But I just want to challenge you this morning and say, who is Jesus for you in your mind, in your heart? Who is he? Again, some of you may be here. New Year's resolution, you're trying to jump back into church. We hope you're here next week and the next week and the next week. We hope you stick and you keep coming. But you may sit here this morning and say, I don't know what this guy's talking about. Christ, Son of God, I don't, I don't understand any of this stuff. You might sit here this morning and you might say, you know, I know the words, but I, I don't know about all that. I, I don't know. I just, he's the guy up there and... You pray in his name, that's what you're supposed to do. That may be it for you. Can I tell you a common thought among Americans is that Jesus exists to make us comfortable. Like he's the guy you go to when you need something. Or he's the guy you go to when you have a problem. Right? You don't go to him just because he is who he is. The Christ is the Son of God. You just go and you say, oh, Lord, man, Jesus, I need you to do this. I need you to do that. Your idea of Jesus may be absolutely no different than a genie in a bottle and you just say the right word, you rub the lamp and out he comes and you start telling him all the things you need in life. He might be the guy that's supposed to be like your agent and make sure you're employed all the time. He might be the guy that's supposed to make your family life smooth and easy sailing. He might be the guy that's supposed to keep you healthy and when you get sick and you don't get well and the doctor says there's no solution, you're like, Jesus, where, what in the world, man? I thought you and me. Who is he? You can play the church game. You can give me all the right answers. You can fill in the blanks on your outline. The question is eternally significant. John says, I've written these things that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the one that God promised to send to fix what your sin messed up. That's what he came to do. He came to die for you. He's the Son of God. This is not some created being 
that he sent on a rescue mission. This is God himself come to save his people. John says, I want you to believe these things. Why? Why does he want us to believe? Why does it matter? The answer is simple, that we may have life. That we may have life. I told you that John uses the verb believe 98 times. He uses the word life 47 times. It shows up over and over and over again. Life, life, life. John wants us to have life. Some Bible scholars say that this is John's way of talking about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Right? He doesn't mention the kingdom like Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. What he does mention is life over and over and over again. And some say that's his way of talking about the exact same thing. The assumption all the way through the gospel of John, you can't miss. The assumption is that we don't have it. He came that we could have it. Right now we don't have it. To use biblical language, we are spiritually dead. Right? If you want to go through the Old Testament and say, what does this look like in the Old Testament? You can talk about Ezekiel 36 and 37. It says your heart is as dead as a rock in your chest left to yourself. You have a, a rock in your chest and it's not beating and it's not working properly. Ezekiel 37 is taken together, we're like a valley of dry bones. There's no life in dry bones, just death. The New Testament version might be Ephesians 2 where Paul says you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You're spiritually dead. You know as well as I do, most people who have grown up in our culture have a really hard time reconciling this from their mind to their heart and accepting this idea that left to ourselves apart from God's grace, we are spiritually dead. Well, I'm not perfect. I mean, I know I have shortcomings. I could always be better, right? Everyone can, there's always room for improvement. No, I'm not perfect. We're, we're willing and we're quick and we're glad to admit that, but the Bible says it's way worse than that. It's not just that you're not perfect, it's that you're dead. You say, yeah, but you don't know my neighbor or my coworker. I mean, that lady, she's bad. She's mean, and man, she will. Her tongue is sharp, and that guy will turn on you and betray you. I mean, I know I'm not perfect, but compared to that guy? And the Bible says, you know, you can just take your sliding scale of morality and chuck it out the window. Because the real problem is not that sin makes you bad, it's that sin makes you dead. You are dead spiritually apart from God's grace in your life. One of the things I've noticed lately, and I know you've noticed too, is that Hollywood is making a buck off live-action remakes, right? They're taking all these animated movies that we used to watch when we were little or our kids used to watch, and they're giving us these live-action versions, and we're paying all this money to go watch these live-action movies where you take a, a cartoon and you turn it at least what looks like. A lot of it's still CGI stuff, but it looks like real people to us. Live action stuff. Maybe the greatest example of one of these movies coming is the story of Pinocchio. You seen Pinocchio? Right? It was released in 1940. It was Disney's second movie. 
Just the second movie they ever released. I read some stuff this week. Uh, People in the know and animators and different folks say this is the greatest piece of art that Disney ever put out. They love this movie. They've been talking about making a live-action version of Pinocchio. Uh, They've said that they're going to hopefully cast Tom Hanks as uh, the puppet maker, Geppetto. And they're all excited about this live-action remake of Pinocchio. And you know the story. Everybody knows Pinocchio with his nose that grows when he tells a lie and all those sorts of things. But the story is simple. He's a puppet. He's made of wood. And he wants to be alive. He just wants to be a real boy, a real human being, not just a puppet. Okay? Here's what John would say if he just walked out of the live-action remake of Pinocchio with you. Okay? This is what the Apostle John would say. Left to yourself, you're more like the wooden Pinocchio than the boy Pinocchio. I mean, you may be walking around and making noise and all this stuff, but you don't have life. You're dead. You're more like the mannequin wearing the clothes in the store window than the model on the runway. I mean, you might have all the right parts and you might have the clothes on and be playing the role, but there's no life here, and there's life here, and left to yourself, you're dead. You have no life. You're more like the imaginary football player on the video game than the guy running around in real life. I mean, you're just, you're sort of like this less than alive being. John says, you're dead. Just showing up and being born doesn't put you in God's family. All that does is make you God's enemy. And John's going to say through Nicodemus in a conversation he has with Jesus, if you want to be part of God's family, if you want to be part of God's kingdom, if you want to have life, you have to be born again. One birth is not enough. you got to be born again. And John says, look, I've written these things. I've lived a long time. I've seen a lot of things come and go. I've suffered. All my friends have died. My closest friends have all died. And I know that you didn't get to see Jesus. You didn't get to hear him preach. I know that you maybe don't even live on the same continent as him. I know that you didn't get to see the miracles. You didn't eat, get to eat the bread that he made when he fed this crowd with a small boy's lunch. I know you didn't get to experience any of those things. But listen, it's okay. Because I've written these things for you. And I want you to believe. I want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. And if you do that, if you truly, truly do that, not just in sort of a going through the motions way, but genuinely, actively believing the truth about Jesus, you will have life. Maybe you didn't even know that you didn't have it, but he's offering it to you. You can have life. I'm going to ask you to bow and we're going to pray.